Well, welcome back, and uh, James chapter 1, we are in tonight, James chapter 1. Uh, one of our congregants asked uh, a question last Sunday night after church about the chronological timeline of James and the writing of the book, and I suppose what spurred her thought and question was James' uh, pronouncement that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him uh, ask of God. And her question was this, uh, give us some chronological basis of when was the church council in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, because at the church council, uh, James was absolutely, decidedly the pastor. We won't take turn, time to turn there, but I think in the 15th chapter or so of Acts, when the great question was brought before the church, do we have to add anything to grace, was really the question. Uh, after all the debates were done and all the thoughts were given, James stood forward and said this, My judgment is... That's a pretty authoritative stand, is it not? There was no problem with the authority of the pastor in the early church. James was the leader. And he said, I've heard all the debates. We've talked this thing. This is my judgment. This is the direction we go. And thank God that there's no thing, nothing added to grace for we Gentiles. Praise the Lord. And so James' decision and judgment was, was sound, but he was decided, decidedly the pastor. Now that church council took place about 58 A.D., Dates are hard in the, in the ancient world, but around A.D. 58 was that particular church council. Now let me give you a little chronological um, timeline of what went on. This book was probably written in the early 50s, probably in the early 50s. So this book was written before the church councils <coughs> took place. So the cry out for wisdom was something James experienced after he wrote it, not before. Um, James died in 62 A.D. He died in 62. So uh, the church council took place at 58. This book was written in the early 50s. He died in 62. So obviously, and if you read five different authors, you're going to get five different dates of when James was written. They just, we just don't know, but we know it was before 62. Because in that year, James was confronted by the Jewish authorities because of the, of the power and the effect of the Jerusalem church. He was told not to preach Christ anymore. In fact, he was brought up to the temple wall, the, the city wall, actually. And he was made to stand on that wall, and he was told that day before a huge Jewish crowd to denounce Christ. Well, they got James up there, and true, true to James, instead of denouncing Christ, he got preaching the gospel. He got preaching the gospel. Well, the Jews didn't like that. That wasn't their intent of giving him an audience, so they threw him off the wall. He did not die in the wall, and so they began to stone him. Stones wouldn't kill him, although I'm sure they hurt him. He still wasn't dying. Finally, somebody came forward with a fuller's brush, a big wooden club, and beat him in the head until his brains shot out of his head onto the, the ground. This is the way James died. Thrown from the city wall, stoned, and then beaten with a fuller's club until his brains were dashed out. And... Uh, that's a pretty glorious end for any preacher. It really is. Preaching the gospel and going to heaven in the midst of proclaiming Jesus Christ. I know it's probably none of us would choose it, but this is the kind of man who wrote the book of James and the kind of pastor and preacher that he was. Full of grit, full of love for Christ. And uh, so that gave you a little bit of chronological order for the thing. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. 
And he, uh, just to bring you up to, to memory, the burden of James is ethical behavior, not doctrinal. We don't go to the book of James for doctrinal stuff. James assumes all the things of Paul to be correct. So Paul's heavy on doctrine. And towards the end of Paul's letters, he gives, okay, based on all this doctrine, this is the way you live. James isn't like that. His burden is not doctrinal. He assumes you know the doctrinal stuff. His burden is the ethical behavior of Christians, how we act in this world, how we behave toward one another. All right, so his burden is ethical, not doctrine. Uh, he's writing to Christian Jews. So this is a very Jewish-type Christian writing. He leans heavily on the teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, go to Matthew chapter 5. Go to Matthew chapter 5. I'll give you one example before we move into the, the teaching. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew, which was written by the tax collector, primarily for a Jewish audience. Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. Uh, he wrote about the king of the Jews. And in chapter 5, in this Sermon on the Mount, uh, he writes that Jesus said this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's talking about the need for righteousness here. Go back to James chapter 1, verse 2. James chapter 1, verse 2. In a verse we covered last week about count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet various trials... For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. The righteousness that Matt John was, Matthew was talking about out of the lips of Jesus. So th this is a book of wisdom, okay? This is a book of very practical, ethical teaching. Uh, what Paul argues doctrinally, James illustrates through practical Christian living. Now, as I mentioned last week, Martin Luther didn't like this book. Some of the church fathers didn't like this book. They felt like it lended toward legalism. This is not a legalistic book. This is a very practical, ethical book of Christian behavior that doesn't fight with Paul at all. Okay, let's look at the verses. Verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it, wisdom, the subject of the sentence, will be given him. Now let's talk about wisdom. Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is to know how to do something, whatever that is. I took Bob, who's a skilled engineer over to see my work table that I built over in the barn. Not because I wanted to impress him, I wanted to give him a moment of comic relief, basically. With a small amount of knowledge, I built that table. It'll hold a hammer and some screws, and that's about it, but there it is. You need knowledge to know how to do things in life. But wisdom isn't knowledge. Wisdom is to know how to view life and from God's perspective. Wisdom is to see the circumstances of life and to know how to behave yourself according to those circumstances. 
It's seeing beyond the surface. It's understanding that what you hear from people isn't the whole story. It's seeing that there's things behind people's lives that perhaps cause them to behave in such a way. It's to understand why things have happened to us like they have. I'm talking about the the things that we can't control that have happened to us. It's to understand and see the value of negative things in life, like the black eyes of life. Wisdom is knowing how to order your life from a perspective that is not normally and naturally yours. Now, you remember when Solomon took over for his father as the king. There was a request he made of God that pleased God so much And it was the request of wisdom. And this is what God said to Solomon. He said, look, you didn't ask for riches. You didn't ask for power. You didn't ask for a lot of things you could ask me. You asked me to see life like you saw it. Man, that pleased God. He says, since you've asked for that, I'm going to give you some riches, and I'm going to give you some power, and I'm going to give you a lot. Now, eventually it ruined him and went to his head, but that's, that's the rest of the story there. But John, James chapter 1 says, if you lack wisdom, if you can't figure life out, if you don't know why things have happened to you and people are like they are, ask God. Ask God to see life like he sees it. Notice it says, but let him ask in faith. Let him ask for this wisdom, believing that he's going to get it without doubting. For the one who doubts, is like a wave of the sea. Now, these are not waves that crash against the shore on a steady basis. These are waves out to sea that are random and wild and unpredictable. They are caused to rise and fall based on elements outside of themselves that whip themselves up. Now, watch his illustration. James is a great illustrator. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, when you go to the Lord and ask Him for wisdom, don't go to ask anybody else for wisdom. You ever known folk, and maybe we've been like this in the past, where you had a a pressing situation, and you went to 12 people to ask 12 different opinions of how to handle it. You got 12 different answers. You didn't know what to do. Sometimes we're, we're influenced by this teaching. We're influenced by this book. We're influenced by this person. We're influenced by this movement or whatever. We're just tossed, you know, whatever is hitting us at any given time. That's what we do. Rather than step back from it all and ask God, what's, what's your plan in this? What's your wisdom? And then wait for his answer. Now, he may use somebody to give you that answer. But don't let people influence you that quickly and that easily to go this way and that way. And, you know, you ought to do this and you ought to do that. Well, back up. Don't be driven around easily influenced by others. At least a little thing said to us and we go off in some other direction. Step back. Ask God for wisdom. And then wait for his answer. Notice, don't be easily influenced. For that person, in verse 7, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You ever given somebody advice that you felt was good, sound advice? 
and you found uh, that they were doing something different than other your good sound advice and you asked them, why didn't you follow my advice? Well, somebody else told me something else to do. It really encourages you to tell them what your opinion is next time to ask, isn't it? And God's the same way. Ask him and don't ask anyone else. Wait for his answer. Wait. Don't, don't, don't run from this and that. Everybody's got opinions, and you know what they're like. Look at verse 7. But let not that person suppose that he will receive the answer or anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded. Now, this is an expression in Greek that is nowhere else in Greek. This is a coined word by James that he kind of made up out of the Greek. The only place you find it in all of Greek literature is in the book of James. This is a double-minded man. He is unstable in all of his ways. Now, what's, what's it mean to be double-minded? It means on Sunday to cry out to the Lord and ask for his opinion, his thoughts. Or it is to say to God, I trust you in this particular situation. And about the moment halfway you get to, in the parking lot to the car, you're worrying about it. You either trust the Lord or you trust yourself. That's double-minded. Either you trust the Lord that he really is going. And I know for us as frail human beings, that's sometimes difficult to do. Mainly because we want to be in control of life and in control of others. And we want to fix everything and we want to solve all the problems. Instead of letting God be God. Either he's God or you're God. And if you're God, he can't be your God. You're double-minded. I'm going to trust the Lord in this situation. And then the minute it doesn't go the way we want, we're back in the mix of it. Manipulating people, manipulating situations, and trying to have our own way, and self comes out. Double-minded. We either trust God or we don't trust God. You can't flip-flop back and forth. The Lord knows that. We've all done that. Cry out to the Lord and, and trust Him on Sunday and Monday morning. You just get up wringing your hands. That's doubting. That's lack of faith. Look at verse 7. Then he says, let the lowly brother. Now he's talking about socioeconomic basis. Let the lowly brother, let the brother who doesn't have much, Lives in poverty, and poverty is relative, by the way. You may think you don't have much. Move to another country in the world, and you're pretty well off. So poverty is, is really relative. I was interested to see that the happiest country in all the world is Colombia. Did you know that? Of course, they have a big drug trade in Colombia. I don't know how those two you know, relate to each other. <laughs> Hopefully not. But when it panned the picture of Colombia, those people were living humble. They were living out in the, you know, they were just happy. They didn't have anything. I'll never forget when Mike Roddy and I were down in, in, uh, in Haiti. Uh, and uh, we, were, um, we were actually part of a team that went onto the island to help them after a hurricane had ripped up a whole bunch of stuff. We as a bunch of sailors went and cut some, anyway, we just did some work for them. And I'll never forget Mike and I on a, a, a van going up into the country and, and as we passed by banana huts and folks that had nothing out there. And Mike said, look at them. And I did. And he said this. He said, they're some of the happiest people in all the world. They have no care. 
They get hungry to go pick a banana off the tree. <laughs> they're just happy. They live simple lives, and they're happy. So he says, look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast, brag, pronounce happiness. Notice in his exaltation, in his high position. Now, there's great debate on this verses, who's saved and who's not in these verses. Uh, some say the lowly brother and the rich brother are both brothers. Some say that the lowly brother is a Christian and the rich isn't, are not Christians in this verse. There's fine debate on both sides, fine evidence on both sides, and I will not take a position, well, maybe I will slightly tonight, but it's not well defined and it's not well defended, either position. But let's just, for, for the fun of it, take the position that the low brother, the poverty-stricken brother, is a saved person. And I take that because he calls them a brother, and the next one it says the rich is not referring to a brother. But again, it could go both ways. Let the lowly brother brag and boast in his high position. Now what high position does a lowly Christian have? He's got heaven. He's got a position in Christ right now. He's got joy unspeakable and full of glory. No matter what happens in this life, it is a temporary black eye. It's really all it is. It's going to go away in a few years, maybe moments. So we who perhaps in this world don't have much, and these Christians were suffering from the loss of land and businesses, brag on what's coming. Brag on what we possess right now in the high position of Jesus Christ. Possess, we possess spiritual values that are beyond description. No matter where we go home tonight, our address is really in Christ, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father. That's where we live. That's where we are. Let the lowly brother, who sometimes the rich look down upon, brag on what we have in Christ. Notice it says, and the rich, in his humiliation. Well, what's his humiliation? That he won't always be rich. Now, we're poor, but we won't always be poor. In fact, we're not poor right now. But he's rich, and he's poor right now. And unless he gets saved, if that's the interpretation of the verse, he will always be poor. Notice, and the rich in his humiliation... Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And what will become of his house on the river and his fancy cars? Someone else will drive it. No one else will live there and probably tear it up. Let the rich recognize that he needs to be humble because life is short. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. We know all about that in Florida in the midst of the summer. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away. Notice, in the midst of his pursuits. In the midst. Notice not at the end when he dies, 
But in the middle of all his getting more and more and more, he is dying more and more and more. He is slowly fading away as he's clutching for more and more and more. Remember the world we talked about this morning, the world that encloses upon a trap from Satan? That's one of the things that he uses is riches. Who'd like to have more money in here? Now forget you're in church, okay? Who would like to have more money? Okay. Whitney is slowly imbibing into Lorelai's vocabulary this phrase, Mama's short on money. She went to the zoo the other day and Kiki asked her, did you ride the train? She said, no, Mama's short on money. Tight on money. Did you feed the giraffe? No, Mama's tight on money. She said, I didn't even ride the merry-go-round because Mama's tight on money. <laughs> I envisioned 50 years from now at Whitney's funeral, of course I won't be there, Whitney's funeral, that she'll be cremated and someone will come up to Lorelai, who's in her 40s now, and ask her, why didn't your Mama have a burial? And she'll say, well, Mama was tight on money. <laughs> Or maybe she'll say, Lorelai was tight on money. (laughs) It's okay to be tight on money. It's okay to say, I haven't got it. It's okay to say, I'm I'm not going to go get it. I'm not going to go in debt for something that's going to break down before it gets home. It's okay to say no. It's okay not to have what you want to have. Because what you really want to have is a possession of Jesus Christ and the glories of the riches of, of His name. You want the riches to someday stand on a, a city wall and proclaim the gospel and get thrown down and stoned and beaten to death. That's riches. That's glory right there. James's point is, we're not looking at it right. If you look at it with wisdom from God, everything changes. Everything turns around. Everything's different from God's perspective. The momentary life that we think is so important is so fast and so rampant. And and, and, and eternity is forever. And the glories that we share, even right now, the rich guys down on the river don't have peace in their souls. When I first built the house that we live in now, they they talked me into a Brinks uh, burglar alarm, which I signed for a three-year three contract and regretted about two years and nine months of it. At the end of three, because I got looking around, I thought, what are they going to steal? The only thing we got is a TV upstairs, and they're too lazy probably to carry that downstairs. It's a blessing not having things, isn't it? Nobody's breaking into our house. What are they going to take? You know? You got some expensive stuff, you better go buy a safe, and then you got to, anyway. Notice the sun rises, scorching heat, all that withers, and notice in the midst of the pursuits, the rich man fades away. Verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, verse 12 is kind of a, a piece of bread And the other piece of bread was back up in verse 4 when it talks about suffering. And in between these two bookmarks or pieces of bread uh, is is the talk about 
double-mindedness, and, and then he throws riches in there and wealth. Interesting. One of the areas of suffering and trials that comes to the Christian is the desire for acclamation of goods and wealth or the trial of the loss of things in life. Caleb's got a good friend uh, who actually married them years ago and loved that guy. He was a great guy. And uh, I guess months or maybe years after he, Chris, was it, came and married you, Chris lost everything. He was accused within a church by a young girl of uh, who that family was angry with him, of having some kind of relationship they shouldn't have had, totally innocent, wife left him, lost everything, lost his health. He had to learn to walk again. That's a trial, man. Chris never saw that coming. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. God has a purpose. Chris is making a good comeback, hopefully seeing the wisdom of the things that happened to him in hardship. Trial. Notice, blessed is the man who remains under the load, who remains faithful and steadfast under the trial. Okay? Not trying to escape it, not trying to manipulate the situations from getting away from it, but understands that this trial, this test, this whatever comes is a gift from God. It's going to make me change me. It's going to make me see my need for Christ deeper and more abiding than ever before. But you have to remain under it. Don't, don't wrestle. Don't, don't fight God in the, in the trial. Don't fight him. He has a purpose. Well, you don't know what they said or they did. You know, they, they did this and they did. What does it matter what they did? When you place yourself under the circumstances and succumb to God's leadership in the thing, people aren't in control of what happens to you. They aren't. God is. And he uses people in your life, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in a negative way, but you've got to think right about it. If you don't think right, you'll never react right. Remain steadfast under the trial, under the test. And it says, therefore, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, there'll be crowns in heaven. I take this to be one of the crowns that is handed out. This is the crown of life. Whether it's a, a crown received in heaven or an experience now to experience the crown of his life in your life. Something wants me to go in that direction. That when you steadfast under the trial, you experiencing the joy and the crown of his life in you. But I'll be honest, I really don't, I'm not sure what James is saying here. Uh, let's go on a couple more verses and then we'll be done. Notice the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Now let's stop there. We'll look at a few more verses, but notice for those who love him. When you are steadfast under the trial that God has brought, not man, what you're saying is, I love him. When you fight and struggle under the battles that come, what you're saying is, I love me. It's really that simple. I want my way in this thing. I love me. You can only love him or love yourself. It doesn't go both ways. 
But when you say, I love him, you're saying, whatever he brings, I will be under the trial, receiving his life in that situation. You know, you can talk all day in church, and I can preach all day in church, and you can listen all day in church, and we can talk about this stuff and study, but where the rubber meets the road is in the midst of a Tuesday afternoon when you just got slammed in a black eye, and man, it hurts. You found out somebody was talking about you, or you found out something happened, or circumstances beyond your control. In that moment, you're either loving him or you're going to love yourself. In that moment, you will choose to be steadfast under the trial, receiving this from the hand of God. Or you will choose to love yourself and you will fight. You know what you get when you squeeze an orange, don't you? No, you don't. You get what's ever in the orange. I might have filled it up with grape Kool-Aid. You get whatever's inside and you squeeze a Christian through trial. See? Right, let's read a couple more. Let him let no one say when he is tempted. Let's stop there. Let's save that for next week. Because that, that James sends us on a new thought and gives us probably the purest definition of temptation there is in the Bible. Okay, any thoughts or questions about tonight? Observations or things that you want to bring up? Anything at all as we've walked through these verses? James is a straight shooter. He's a practical puncher. He has short, pithy statements that, that we don't like, but hit home. Uh, I think it was uh, Mark Twain, I think it was Mark Twain who said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that bother me. 